0: friends, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's a great privilege to speak to you in the work. I'm conscious that any of you could get up and give these talks and do them better, but I've got the job. So uh, I'm going to pray a short prayer that uh, Dick Lucas often used to pray, and then we'll read and dive into 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Gracious God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give to us. What we are not, please make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to read it quite quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. And Jack, thank you again so much for the welcome. Thank you for the huge uh, provision of a lovely room with enough people for 12 to sleep across (laughs) the bed. (laughs) And all the goodies in my little welcome bag and a lovely fellowship with you. I'm looking forward to these days enormously. And I'm, am I meant to stop? Can you tell me what time I'm meant to stop? Nine. It's quarter two. Nine. So I'm going to go, I'm going to wait until you look sleepy, but I'll certainly be finished soon. 1 Timothy 1 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is faith." Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, "...for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust." And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having which some having rejected, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I realise my translation is an unusual one, and it is the New King James and I'm not quite sure why I've chosen it except that I was on a trip once and I wanted a little Bible and this one seemed to me to be a good compact little Bible. So you'll be able to follow your own translation. The plan is to travel through the letter of Timothy in four sessions and this is the first of course. In case you think 1 Timothy is not a very exciting book, Let me assure you, especially if you're involved in pastoral ministry, that this book is going to deal with faith, love, the prosperity in the spiritual sense of a healthy church, good leadership, how to not make big blunders in the work, and how to keep your mind on eternal things. It's a very precious letter. The theme of the conference, as you may know, is the heartbeat of God. If i may say this reverently what excites god obviously his glory worthily excites him properly excites him but we're also going to notice that he is concerned for the salvation of people the answer in verse 1 is that god is described as savior of all the things that paul might have used to describe god he, he might have said god our king god our father god our rock god our maker He says God our Savior and it's central to 1 Timothy it keeps coming up God our Savior chapter 1 chapter 2 and chapter 4 therefore every issue that comes up in the letter whether it's getting the message right it's got to do with salvation Getting the meetings right, it's got to do with salvation. Getting the leadership right, it's got to do with salvation. Getting pastoral crisis, it's got to do with salvation. Getting eternal perspective, it's got to do with salvation. That's the heartbeat of the letter. And you'll see also in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is our hope because everything will get sorted. The one who achieved when he came will complete when he comes. He is our hope, our certain expectation. And I think those of you who are pastors may be interested to know that often you'll find the key to the pastoral letters in the very first verse of the, of the epistle. So in chapter 1, verse 1, we discover God is saviour. I think that's crucial to the letter. In 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul says, although he's on death row, I'm here for life, capital L. And that is the theme of the letter. Everything has to do with this great future. And then Titus talks about coming to faith, knowledge and godliness. And I think the transformation in chapter 1, verse 1, is the theme of the letter of Titus. There is Titus in a terrible place, and yet the grace of God, the gospel of God, is going to transform people, which will spill over into the island itself. So you'll often find the key to the epistle or uh, pastoral epistles in the door. Um, there's a lot in the letter about truth, of course, people leaving the truth, people needing the truth, but all of that is in the service of people being saved. Well, I don't need to tell you that the letter is to Timothy. He's working in Ephesus where Paul planted a church and served for two years, which is quite a long time for the Apostle Paul. But it's also a public letter because at the very end of the letter, he says, grace to you all, or grace to you, plural. So the letter is for the believers. And Timothy, we're told in verse 2, is going to need and receive grace, mercy and peace. Now, I don't think this is just talk from the Apostle Paul. When he says grace, mercy, and peace, some of that is going to come by reading the letter to see more of the grace of God, to hear more of the mercy of God, to hear more of the peace of God. But God, of course, is going to be funneling that, supplying that. And so, Jack asked me earlier, about 30 years in the same place, I would say, you know, the grace of God keeps coming to us. And the mercy of God keeps covering us and the peace of God keeps enthusing us. Remember that um, incident in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim comes to the home of Interpreter. Remember, he walks in and there's a, a fire in the fireplace. You may remember this illustration. And there's a man throwing buckets of water onto the fire. And um, Pilgrim asks the question, how, how come the fire's still going? Why isn't it going out, all this water being poured onto the fire, and the interpreter takes him round to the back, and there are these pipes with grace, with oil, being funnelled into the fire. And that's really the picture of the privilege of the Christian life and the Christian pastor as well. Well, before we return to chapter 1, I just want to remind you of the backdrop because when Paul went to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, we read about it, a very wonderful door opened. He had what we would call opportunity. Then came great opposition and then God overruled. I like to think of this as the three O's of ministry. Opportunity, opposition and the the overruling of God. Triple O. Opportunity, opposition and the overruling of God. The wonderful thing about God is that even when trouble is taking place, he is not, he's not lost at that particular point. If you've ever seen those movies where you've got two guys fighting on the top of a train, you know those sort of movies where you've got two guys fighting on top of a train? It just looks unbelievably terrible. But the train is moving. It's going forward. Whatever's happening on the top of the carriage, the train is moving. And the gospel work keeps going forward, because God makes sure it keeps going forward, even while there may be some trouble on the top. Well, in Acts chapter 19, you may remember that Paul arrives in Ephesus, he finds some men who have no Holy Spirit, and he shows them the way to Jesus. What an opportunity. Then he finds a hall to preach in, and he spends a long time preaching the gospel. And um, the, the gospel spreads widely, and then, bang, comes the opposition, the backlash, Uh, Jews try to play with the name of Jesus, and uh, F.F. Bruce says in his commentary, the name of Jesus exploded in their hands, and yet people became very fearful, which was healthy. Then the silversmiths got upset because their trinket business was being lost, and they started a riot, and the riot was absolutely chaotic. And uh, we read in chapter 19, verse 32 of Acts, Most did not know why they were there. It's a great description of many protests in the city, isn't it? Most did not know why they were there. I'm thinking of preaching that one Christmas as my text. Most did not know why they were there. (laughs) As people gather at the carol service. Uh, how does God respond and rescue Paul from the chaos? So often in the book of Acts, it's by using the Roman authorities. And the clerk comes out, calms everybody down, tells them to take it to the courts if they want to, and Paul is wonderfully delivered. Opposition, uh, Opportunity, opposition, and the overruling of God. So when Paul says in 2 Timothy, I have been delivered from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. To him be glory forever and ever. He means it. He knows what he's talking about. And Paul is passing all of this on to Timothy. Well, I'm going to try and look at this under two headings this evening. The first is using the law properly. And that's uh, basically the first uh, verses 3 to 11. Um, Timothy has a very difficult job, doesn't he? Chapter 1 verse 3. Imagine getting a letter from your boss which says this stay where you are that you may charge some to stop speaking that's a difficult thing for a young pastor to do those of us who join small groups bible study groups home groups know how difficult it is to stop the person who dominates from talking too much or the complete oddball who has so many wacky ideas, you don't really know what to do with this. Or the mystic who suddenly comes up with the most unbelievably odd thoughts. And we're in that kind of culture, aren't we, where we find ourselves saying, well, that's absolutely wonderful, but it's not. How to shut down even the member of a group is difficult. And here is um, Paul telling Timothy that he's to shut down what are probably difficult people. Now, who are the false teachers in Ephesus? They seem to have two heresies, chapter 1, verse 4. They have an over-interest in strange things, myths, genealogies and speculations. Calvin says, to devote your life to the family tree of Achilles must be termed a ridiculous occupation. Nice to know Calvin had a little bit of humour The other heresy, in verse 7, is that they misuse the law. And notice the effect of these false teachers. They create controversies, verse 4. So there is division. And the cause of God is therefore not advanced. Here's the problem. Somebody brings in a rule, and you know historically in church history, that when people add to the gospel, it has a divisive effect on the church. So often, when you subtract from the gospel, you know, Jesus didn't really rise, it has a motivating effect on the church to go back to the facts. But the adding to the gospel has a divisive effect on the church historically, and you have the A group and the B group. And so, what happens then is that there is a division in the church, and people are either depressed or proud. And then you have this kind of antagonism which changes the dynamic and the usefulness of the church in the work of salvation now god's work he says verse 4 is a message of faith it's a message of faith in jesus and the goal verse 5 is that there will be love i don't know how long you've been in your church but there is nothing like staying in a place and watching the word of god set free people to love him and love one another and love the lost. I'm not saying the church becomes perfect, but there's nothing like seeing the gospel make people responsive to him, affectionate to one another and interested in the lost. That's the work Paul calls the faith. And you can't have a greater contrast between the message of law permeating the church, creating division, and the message of faith permeating the church, creating mission you can't have a greater contrast now i've called this talk guns and roses you may have seen on the outline and i actually didn't know what guns and roses was Um, i had to google it to find out what it was Um, and i still have no interest in the original guns and roses (laughs) But I called the talk guns or roses because it seemed to me that the work of the law is basically shooting around the congregation and the work of gospel is basically bringing peace and affection to the congregation. (coughs) You notice how Paul expands on the issue in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, the law is good. Well, of course the law is good. It was given by God. The law is not an enemy of grace. I hope nobody in the room thinks that the law is a bad thing, but grace is a good thing. (laughs) Now, the law is a good thing. It helps us to appreciate grace. In fact, the law comes from grace. The law tells us about God, so it's good. It teaches us about our sinfulness, so it's good. It urges us to seek Christ, so it's good, but it doesn't save us. It doesn't make us faithful. It doesn't even bring us to Christ. Did you know that in Galatians 3, it doesn't actually say that the law leads us to Christ? I know people think that the law, like an ambulance, will carry you to Christ. but The law doesn't really do that. At best, the law will put a splint on you to tell, your, tell you you're in trouble, and then Christ must come. It's not as though the law is active in carrying us to Christ. It just x-rays the disease to change the metaphor. And so Paul emphasises the usefulness of the law in convicting lawbreakers. And in fact, in verses 9 and 10, there's a slight allusion to the Ten Commandments. Uh, If you want to use the law to convict, the Apostle Paul is saying, use it on the lost. Don't use it on the found to convict them. If you want to throw the law around, the Apostle Paul is saying, the convicting role of the law should be for the lost people, not the found people. That's the primary emphasis in these verses. Uh, If the law is an X-ray machine, It points us to the doctor, it doesn't take us to him, but it points us to the need of a doctor who is Jesus Christ. Well, we're not meant to go around x-raying all the believers. That's not really our message. Now, we know that the law does have a place in the Christian life. It reminds us of the holiness of God. It reminds us of our inability. It reminds us to be thankful for the Saviour. But Christians, my friends, have enough trouble believing the grace of God without having to be unsettled again and again and again by other believers. Luther himself, in um, one of his sermons, said that um, he preaches the law, or he preaches the gospel, he preaches the gospel of grace. And then he said, I get home and I put my head on the pillow and I'm filled with terror. He said, my students are getting it. But I'm slow to get it. And we are slow to get the gospel of grace because it's not the way we are wired because of sin. It has to be brought to us again and again and again. It's a little bit like the child who gets adopted. You know those children who get adopted when they're 8, 9 or 10? They take a long time to appreciate that their parents really are for them. And they're just a little nervous that at some stage they may be moved on. And it takes a lot of work to help those children to appreciate that they're safe and secure and home. If you think this is irrelevant, let me assure you that I've watched congregations, especially since I've been retired, where the people are slumping in their pews because the sermon is just hammering them. And there is a sense of just complete failure I'm not saying there isn't a place for challenge and I'm not saying there isn't a place for commands. But we have to ask ourselves what effect we want to see on the congregation as we preach the word. I've also seen congregations set free by the gospel and rejoice and become animated to serve the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul is not making a huge case here. This is not like Romans 6, 7 and 8 But he is helping Timothy to concentrate on the real work, which is the message of faith in Jesus. I want to ask you whether you think the law is a good uh, weapon in evangelism. And uh, is this being recorded? Um, Somebody says no, somebody says yes. Yes. (laughs) Maybe this is being recorded. Uh, But um, is there anyone who thinks that the law is good for evangelism? I'm not asking you to respond um, verbally. I'm just asking you to think about this because uh, there may be certain people who are greatly helped by being taken through the commandments and seeing that, yes, this has been broken, this has been broken, this has been broken. And there are people who teach this as a good way to do evangelism. And I don't want to to despise it. The difficulty that I find in pastoral work is that when I look at Jesus with the outsider, like the woman at the well, he's not using the law. And when I look at Paul with the outsider, like Acts chapter 17, he's not using the law. And therefore, it seems to me that the great emphasis of our ministry is to help people understand something of Jesus and be, be drawn to him, ideally, and not driven away from him by stupidity. So we're really wanting to help people understand the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus primarily, but I don't want to despise the possibility that the law may be helpful. Why is Paul so concerned about this myth and law ministry? Because it ruins the fellowship and ruins the mission. And if our children hear only law as they come up through the Sunday school, and if our youth hear only moralism as they come up through the youth group, we shouldn't be surprised if after a while they say, I've had a gut fall. Graham Goldsworthy raises this very issue in his book called Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture, and he says, why is it that so many young people seem to give up at 13, 14 or 15, and it may not just be puberty... He says if they've come through the church and all they've heard is be good, be better, be good, be better, there must come a time where they say this is just unbearable. But we do want our young people, don't we? We want the children to go home from the Sunday school classes saying Jesus Christ is wonderful. He's great and good. We want our youth to go home saying, Jesus Christ is wonderful. He's great and good. We want our congregations to say, Jesus Christ is wonderful. He's great and good. Why would I walk away? I think that's our great emphasis, isn't it? When the gospel gets lost, the message becomes a burden. It just becomes challenge, commitment, moralism. I used to say that if you're um, teaching a class of children and you've got the David and Goliath story, you just don't want to teach the class that David was very brave and won a victory over a big bully. Therefore, you be very brave and win a victory over your bullies. That's just unbearable. A poor little kid thinking about school the next day. No, no, no. We want to be saying to our children, we want to say them something like this, do you know God was so wonderful that he helped David win a victory which blessed all the people. And we have an even more wonderful victor who has done something so wonderful that we are caught up in it. Or if you're teaching the message of uh, Jonah and the whale, you don't want to, with the children as you're tucking them into bed at night, say something like this, you know, Jonah was a very naughty boy. He ran away. And God sent a whale to eat him. And if you ever run away, we will be praying that God sends a whale to eat you. Now, go to sleep and I'll see you in the morning. We don't want to do that. We want to say to our children something like this. How amazing that although Jonah, one of God's servants, should have been interested in the lost, he wasn't. And the lost people didn't deserve to believe, but God, with his compassion, stayed with his servant and kept going for the people. And if you want to know how great the compassion of our God is, look at, and we suddenly find ourselves turning to the cross. Welcome brothers, how nice to see you, your long journey. I know you've had a terrible trip we're glad you're here. Um, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and we've just looked at the first uh, 11 verses and we've tried to talk about the difference between a ministry which is marked by the joy of faith in Christ and has a good effect on the church and young and old and the unhelpful ministry of law and moralism. Now, I've often told at a pastor's conference, and I'll just tell you this so that you know that this is coming home to me, that on one particular occasion when I'd been five years in the ministry at North Sydney and 10 years in the ministry as a senior pastor, a guy who was a chaplain at a nearby school and came to the church with his wife and children refused to shake my hand in the morning as he was leaving. I had been his best man and he was a godparent to my oldest daughter and he just moved around me and I went and found him and I said, is everything okay? And he said this, he said, you don't understand grace. You cannot stop sticking the knife into your congregation. Everything comes back to this, do better. And I said to him, you must be crazy. There's nobody who understands grace and explains it better thinking proudly of myself, and he said, no, you don't understand it. And he was right, and I was wrong. And I was reasonably good at explaining grace to an unbeliever, but I was not good at preaching grace to the believer. And so the congregation were beginning after a few years to fall into two camps. They either cooperated with this difficult pastor and did what was being asked, or they despaired and found sneaky ways to avoid it. And at the same time, I was reading the book uh, by Jerry Bridges called Transforming Grace, and I hated the book because it seemed to me that if you preach grace to your people, they would run into license. And this friend kept saying to me, no, 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 if you preach grace, they'll run to Jesus, ideally, because you're presenting him as attractive. And then I was preaching my way through the book of Isaiah, and I came to chapter 28, verse 20, which says, the, the judgment is God's alien task. Judgment is God's alien task. And then I came to chapter 30, verse 18, which says the Lord longs to be gracious and rises to show compassion. And I had a Copernican revolution. Everything that I had been raised in, everything that I'd been taught as a young believer, suddenly went upside down. And I began, as Wesley was told, to preach faith till he got it, to preach grace till I got it. And I watched the preaching of the grace of God liberate myself and the people more and more. I'm not talking success. I'm just talking God's goodness. And therefore, this is a most important issue which the Apostle Paul tackles in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, the first big pastoral letter. Get the message right. Help your people at the end to see that they live on the backdrop of the height, depth, length and breadth of the love of Christ. You don't want to raise children, do you, in your family where they have this message, if you're good, we'll love you. Nobody would want to raise a child like that. You want to be able to say to your child, we love you, we love you. If you're good, well, of course, it'll be a happy experience. If you're naughty, it'll look like this, but we love you. Whatever happens, we love you. And that's what the gospel is saying to God's people. And I'm just not sure whether people are really hearing it and sometimes where the pastors are hearing it. Now, the second part in the chapter is verses 12 to 17, and there's no doubt that Paul, in this last part of the chapter, wants Timothy to know that it was the gospel, not the law, that saved Paul. Why is this important? Well, because Paul knew the law very well, but it didn't save him. Christ had to come to him. Acts chapter 9 So he says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus who has given me strength, has considered me trustworthy and appointed me to his service. Now, this doesn't mean that Christ looked down and said, wow, the Apostle Paul is amazing. We couldn't do the work without the Apostle Paul. And he's so sincere, he deserves to be saved. No, 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 no. The Lord Jesus looked down and saw the Apostle Paul and out of sheer grace saved him and put him in his service. That's what the Apostle Paul is so amazed by. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Peter Barnes says in his commentary on Galatians that Paul was a kind of super persecutor with murderous hostility, persecuting intensely. His actions were excessive. His opposition went beyond all restraint. His anti-Christ ferocity made havoc of Christians. Paul was a freakish, anti-Christian. And he knew the law. And he hated Christ. Education had not saved him. Religion had not saved him. But Christ came to him. And Paul says in verse 13, he needed mercy because he had two problems. One, he was ignorant of Christ. Second, he had unbelief. He didn't believe in Christ. He was clueless and he was lifeless. He was dead and he was dumb. But verse 14, grace was poured out on the Apostle Paul. And why was grace poured out on the Apostle Paul? Because the judgment that should have been poured out on the Apostle Paul was poured out on Christ. And in verse 15, we have this very wonderful verse, don't we? The first of the five trustworthy sayings in the pastoral letters that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a wonderful text, One fifteen. It's a historical text. God showed up. It's a global event affecting the whole world. It's a costly event. It costs to save. And since everybody in the world is going to arrive in God's courtroom one day, it will not be a small thing to hear the words, welcome, come and take your inheritance. I promise you. On that last day, it will not be a small thing to hear, Welcome, come and take your inheritance. It will be a very terrible thing to hear, Depart, I don't know you. And the gospel is therefore eternally important. This was the verse 15 that God used to open the eyes of a man called Thomas Bilney in the 16th century. He was reading his New Testament. Recently translated by Erasmus, he came to 1 Timothy 1.15 and he read these lovely verse, this lovely verse that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and um, Bilney says in his diary, I lifted up my bruised spirit and night became day. And then if you know the story, he went off to work out how to evangelise the bishop, Latimer. Any of you know this story? So Latimer was the bishop preaching moralism and religion and not the gospel. And Bilney discovered the gospel. He tried to work out how to preach to this very great preacher. And he decided that he would go and confess his sins to Latimer. And that he would confess exactly what he'd done and how he'd found the grace of God. And it was in the confession to Latimer that Latimer was pre- was converted. And this great preacher latimer began to preach the gospel widely and eventually was burned at the stake with ridley but that's the power of this text 1 timothy 1 15. was paul verse 16 the worst sinner was he worse than the list in chapter 1 verse 9 was he worse than the murderer the fornicator the sodomite the kidnapper, kidnapper the liar the perjurer I suspect what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that he saw something of the greatness of Christ, which caused him to see himself more darkly and starkly. And in the kindness of God, he allows us, doesn't he, every now and again to see just a little bit into the depravity of our hearts. I don't know if you've had this experience where you suddenly find yourself thinking, you know, there isn't one clean motive in me. I can't do anything without the infection of sinfulness and selfishness. And therefore we become more and more grateful for the Saviour and more and more appealing to the Spirit. No wonder in verse 16 he sees himself as exhibit A. So nobody might despair. Have you ever attacked the church violently, aggressively, continually, dreadfully? No? No? Well, Paul did, and God saved him and used him. And in verse 17, he bursts into song to the king who is king forever. And then he calls on Timothy in these last verses to fight the good fight. Not the stupid fight, which we read about in chapter 1, verse 4, and not a fun fight, and not an easy fight, and not a glamorous fight, but the good fight. Holding the faith, holding the gospel, holding the message of Jesus, saying, like John the Baptist, go to him, go to him. Don't get caught up with me. Don't get caught up with the church. Go to him, go to Christ. And Paul even names some of the opposition. He names a couple of heretics in verse 19 and 20 so the timothy will know that the apostle paul lived in the real world and the timothy must live in the real world when i was converted at the age of 18 i was in my last year of school and i went back to the local church expecting it to be dreadful and it was wonderful And a new minister came and he replaced the liberal minister who'd been there for many years and he started to preach the scriptures and he was a most dynamic and wonderful man and he brought a beautiful daughter with him who I married. But um, I used to watch this guy in the pulpit and, you know, he was so straight and he was so strong and uh, in the wealthy suburb where he was preaching, he divided the place and some loved him and some hated him but his wife was so sweet, nobody would leave the church because she was so lovely People thought, well, if she is with him, he can't be all that bad. And I said to myself as I watched this guy, you know, if I ever become a minister, I'm just going to make everybody happy. I'm not going to cause any trouble. I'm just going to speak the truth. It'll be so sweet. Everybody will be happy. Everybody will love me. 42 years down the track, I want to tell you, I've had more than my fair share of trouble. A lot of it I've deserved. But I've also had a lot of trouble that I haven't deserved and uh, in the end as the opportunity we're given opens up in front of us and we seek to be urgent in our prayers and urgent in our witness and urgent with our work there will be opposition we can't be left alone unless we are as the Puritan said a smooth file offending nobody There must be some opposition and yet God will overrule it as we've seen. So the true servant, says Paul, holds to the gospel, the gospel of grace. You know how grace works? It comes down from heaven like a great hand of God and faith is the tiny little hand that goes up in response, grace, faith, meeting together in salvation. And we keep telling people of the grace of God and urging them to have faith in the Lord Jesus because God is at work. My wife gave me a book to read when I was coming, and I had a quick look at it in the airport, and there's a very telling illustration of Don Carson where he points out that the Mennonite Church, the history of the Mennonite Church, is that in one series of decades, they held to the gospel but they saw implications in life. And that was good. Held the gospel, saw the implications. The next generation saw the implications, but didn't really think the gospel was all that important to be said again. And the third generation had no gospel. Believed. Assumed, lost. That's a serious thing, isn't it? The people in our church, perhaps they believe the gospel. We don't want the next generation to assume the gospel. And we certainly don't want the next generation to lose it. And that's why 1 Timothy 1 is such an important chapter, because Paul is urging Timothy and urging all the readers, especially us in the ministry, to fight the good fight. Keep telling the gospel so that people who've known it are glad about it. People who don't know it get it and the next generation will get it. That's our task. Okay, let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this um, most wonderful letter, most important chapter and extremely important issue and we pray that you would help us as people who have received the good news, the grace, and have taken hold of the Lord Jesus and are wonderfully appreciative of all that you've done and do and will do. We pray that you would help us in the strength that you provide to keep telling the good news so that our people who've heard it many times are glad again. The people who've not heard it understand it And the people yet to come will hear it. We ask that you'd help us in the task for Jesus' sake. Amen. I just wonder whether you want to ask any quick questions before I sit down, anything that...